This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the program. I'm Sterling Fox. In just a few minutes, Stuart Zuckerman, senior partner and founder of the Zuckerman Law Group, will join us to take your calls on any matters relating to family law. But first, here are some of the top consumer stories we're following this week. Using the Vancouver Aquarium as a backdrop and World Oceans Day as the occasion, A&W announced yesterday they will discontinue using plastic straws by the end of this year and added this This measure will eliminate 82 million plastic straws from Canadian landfills this year alone. But wait, don't those paper replacement straws get all soggy and useless once they're wet? Well, actually, no, says A&W. They're usually good for two to three hours in your drink. And the best part is they naturally biodegrade in under six months after use. Paper straws will cost A&W a touch more, but they say the cost of your teen burger and root beer will stay the same. Yesterday's announcement came just ahead of an expected complaint ban on plastic straws in the city of Vancouver, which is expected around a year from now. And IKEA jumped on the same bandwagon this week, too, announcing they will eliminate all single-use plastic products from its home furnishings line over the next couple of years. That includes straws, plates, cups, freezer and garbage bags, and plastic-coated paper plates and cups. IKEA is also looking at opening repair facilities for some of its furniture products and will add things like new sofa covers and other items to reduce landfills and to extend the life of some of their products. And employee areas at IKEA, along with the bistros and the restaurants, yes, where the meatballs are, will all see plastic items removed by next year as well. New numbers from Statistics Canada this week will tell you about the trade numbers next hour, but we're zooming in on the job numbers now. And while May saw a loss of 7,500 jobs across Canada, as a drop in full-time jobs was only partially offset by some part-time improvements, bottom line, our national unemployment rate still stands at 5.8%, and that's for the fourth month in a row. And the other bit of good news here is the average hourly wages rose by almost 4% compared to last year. That is the largest increase, monthly increase, in nine years. The downside? Well, industry analysts say this really sets up a likely interest rate increase in July, barring some unforeseen news on the trade front. A reminder from TransLink this week that fares are going up July 1st. Yep, just a few weeks away, beginning Canada Day. It will cost a few extra cents to use our transit system. Literally a few, between 5 and 10 cents per trip is the estimate. And the extra loot will pay for five new B-Line buses, improved service in some areas for buses and handy darts as well, and all those new SkyTrain and Canada Line cars due later this year. TransLink calls the increases modest, and they note Compass Card holders who use stored value will still get a better deal than cash customers. They also add, and this is interesting, Metro Vancouver continues to have the lowest average fares of all major Canadian cities. Finally, we're paying less than other people in other cities about something. It's about time. And here's something that is not going up in price on Canada Day. Your passport. 
It's fake news. The story originated in an error-filled Facebook post from a travel agent, and it was shared widely. The post suggested passport fees will increase by 70 bucks for five-year passports and by 100 bucks for 10-year versions, and kids' passports will go up by over $40. All wrong. Immigration Refugee and Citizenship Canada is in charge of issuing passports, and their people adamantly say passport fees rather have not changed since 2013, and they will not change this July 1st either. Those figures, wrongly posted on Facebook by a travel agent, someone who should know better, really, are in fact what the government charges already right now for passports issued either abroad or in the United States. So in this case, no news is actually good news. Those are some of the stories we're following this week. We'll look at a few more later in the show. Stay with us and have your family law questions ready. Andrew, let's open up the phone lines right now. Our guest is very very popular, and our, our phone system gets incredibly busy when Stuart Zuckerman visits. 604-280-9898. Your questions on uh, divorce, custody, division of assets, anything and everything, family law, with Stuart Zuckerman, founder and senior partner of the Zuckerman Law Group, is next, right here on Vancouver Consumer on CKNW. And welcome back to the program on this lovely Saturday afternoon. You know, the forecast for today was just a stinker. And boy, did, did we just dodged that bullet ever so nicely. It's a beautiful afternoon. 214, Sterling Fox and Vancouver Consumer on the radio on CKNW. And in studio, joining me again is Stuart Zuckerman. Mr. Zuckerman is the senior partner and the founder of the Zuckerman Law Group with offices in Surrey and in Yaletown in Vancouver. Stuart, welcome back. Good to see you again. So pleased to be here, Sterling. Thank you. Well, it's a pleasure. Now, you have... We just you just started to fill me in on some of the the details around this. You were you won one of those. This is a classic case, friends, uh, of uh, what happens when a family law lawyer uh, involved in a complex, uh, 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 shall we say, uh, standoff mm-hmm. with the other party. Sometimes, uh, rather than having a judge resolve the case, the lawyers actually work things out on the steps of the courthouse. Yes. Or, yeah. or, or this is darn close. <laughs> Tell us the eleventh hour resolution to this. Well, story. It is. I, I do say to most clients, new clients who come in the door, that 95% of family law cases settle without going to trial. A trial is a very expensive, complex thing. Even a five-day trial involves five or ten days of preparation by your lawyer. And a five-day trial, I often tell people with a senior lawyer like myself, could cost you 100000 or more in legal fees to do a five-day trial. Right. So, so everybody is focused on trying to settle and avoid a trial. Um, but sometimes you do have these cases that go right to the last minute. So I had a, this past week, I had a five-day trial booked to start this past Monday um, and uh, we were negotiating the week before. I, I will tell you when the case started out, it, it involved a common-law spouse um, who had been with a man for seven years or so, no children together. They each had their own children and he owned three properties during the time that they were together um, and uh, and he paid the mortgages and the taxes on those properties um, and uh, when the when the couple separated, the husband basically said to the common-law spouse, look, you're I'm not married to you. I'm not giving you anything out of these properties. You have no entitlement. You didn't contribute, um, giving you nothing. And also, he was refusing to give her any form of alimony or spousal support, despite the fact that his income was higher than hers. She came to us uh, with really uh, no money.
money to to, to put down as a retainer or no significant money. Right. But we knew she had a significant claim because the Family Law Act says she's entitled to 50% of the growth in the equity in any properties that her spouse owned from the date of cohabitation to the date of separation. Right. Even if that that, that other party, as was the case here, didn't contribute financially to the situation. Correct. There's okay. no, no obligation or need for her to contribute. She has an automatic entitlement to 50%. Uh, and this goes both ways, whether it's a man or a woman. Um, a common law spouse has an automatic entitlement, a presumed entitlement to 50% of the growth in equity from the date of cohab to the date of separation. So we knew with these three properties and given the, how property values in Vancouver and the over Fraser Valley seven have, years. Oh over my seven gosh, years, there would be a few bucks in that yes, one. Then. Yeah. So the three properties were each worth over a million dollars. Um, there was significant equity in them. Um, and then apart from that, she needed some monthly support. So if, or months ago, we went to court. The husband said, I'm not paying you a penny. We went to court. We got her an order for $1,500 a month in spousal support, which was a lifesaver to her, um, helped her pay her bills. Uh, and then uh, after a period of time, we brought an application and forced one of the three properties to be sold. And then we brought an application out of, that out of the sale proceeds that we would get an advance. Each side would get an advance of 150000 to f- to go into the trust funds of their lawyers to fund the legal fight for the trial. Okay, um, And then, of course, we had this trial coming up and we were making offers to settle to the other side and they were basically saying we're giving you nothing we're going to trial in the face of losing case after case and decision after decision they were still (laughs) dug in even though the husband lost on spousal support and lost on the property sale and lost on the advance they were still uh, dug in and saying we're not going to give in not going to give anything and then the monday before exactly a week before the trial they finally made an offer which was four hundred thousand uh our our starting position had been about seven hundred and Fifty thousand, um, and by the time we came to Friday at six p.m., we had made an offer to them, which we said, "If you don't accept it by six p.m., we're withdrawing it because we're going to be working all weekend for sure. the See trial." You in court. Yeah. And at five fifty-nine p.m., they accepted our offer, and my client walked away with uh, over seven hundred thousand in total uh, before legal fees. Somewhere over six hundred and twenty thousand after all of her legal fees were were factored in, but still a significant settlement for her. Uh, uh, Pretty much which, what we calculated she was entitled to, um, and she got all the lump sum spousal support that was owing that he hadn't paid. So it was a great settlement for uh, our clients. She was very happy that she didn't have to go through with the trial, and, sure. and it all worked out. Uh, 604, by the way, 604-280-9898. Our first caller is coming in from Rich, and we'll take that call in just a second. But just before we do, uh, 604-280-9898, your questions to Stuart Zuckerman on family law are most certainly welcome. But just to the point that you reiterated here, and you've done it before on this program, and I think it's terribly important that we do it probably each time. And that's the whole matter in changes in family law this this decade, 2013, uh, family law changed in British Columbia, and it directly and mostly affects common law relationships. And still, according to your story of recounting this scrap that you just avoided yes. the court case over, a lot of people don't even know about That's it That's correct. If, if this had happened, if the case that I just described had happened prior to 2013, my client would never have gotten the, the amount of money that she got. Um, and we would have had to fight a much more costly um, trial to do it. Since 2013, the Family Law Act treats common law spouses the same as married spouses. So that is, if you're in a marriage-like relationship for two years or more, once you cross that two-year point of being in a marriage-like relationship um, with somebody, whether it's the same sex or not, uh, whether you're having sex or not, if you're just in a marriage-like relationship where you're 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 publicly viewed as exclusive to each other, mm-hmm. your relationship is exclusive, you support each other either through doing laundry or cooking or cleaning or, or sharing finances, but you don't necessarily have to be sharing finances to be a common law couple. If you're living together 
in a committed spousal-like relationship, then you are a common-law spouse. And once you once you hit that two-year mark, you're automatically the presumption under the Family Law Act now since 2013 is that the, each common-law spouse is entitled to 50% of the growth in equity in all of the assets, savings, RRSPs, property, etc. of the other party from the date of cohabitation to the date of separation and vice versa. Each party is entitled to 50% of the growth of each party's growth in equity and same thing with debt. I was just, just going to ask shared. you about that. Flip the coin because yes. you're all talking about gravy here. Yes. What about stuff that people owe? So the debt you bring into the relationship is your exclusive debt but the growth in debt from the date of the relationship to the date of uh, separation is subject to a 50-50 split as well. Uh, there are cases dealing with debt where um, it is a bit clearer with debt that it has to be debt that's incurred for a family purpose. So right. debt, whether it's debt incurred for groceries or clothing or uh, dinners out, that's fine. But if somebody you know takes their credit card and goes to Vegas and loses ten thousand on their credit card, that's a debt that the court may not consider to be a fifty fifty debt, unless both spouses were participating in the gambling and knew that they were doing it on debt. Um, but but it's normally debt that's incurred for for family purposes that are subject to the fifty fifty split. Interesting. I don't. I hope you don't mind. But that, I think that that this little thing about the change in family law warrants a repeat every appearance you uh, well, make with I, us. I think I can tell you that a lot of people come into my office and have no idea. Yeah. Like you have a, a guy who's a property owner who says, you know, my girlfriend has been living with me for eight years or five years. She's never she's never lifted a finger on the property. She's never paid a penny. She's never contributed to the mortgage. I make sure I pay the taxes out of my own account. We don't share our finances. But, you know, I have to say to that guy, under the law, she's entitled to 50% of the growth and the equity. You can argue something called substantial unfairness if, if to convince the court that it shouldn't be 50-50, but that requires something more than just simple unfairness for the court to do anything other than the 50-50 because the word in the legislation is substantial unfairness. So the court has said it has to be more than just unfair uh, to, to not divide it 50-50 in order to shift the, the court uh, away from that 50-50 split. Interesting stuff. Let's see if our caller in Richmond is being ever so patient this Saturday afternoon. Thanks for waiting. Hello. Hi. Um, my question is about child support. Uh, it was uh, done by Supreme Court order and the children aged out uh, six years, six and eight years ago. Um, FMEP has been paid off and they have told my friend that, uh, that there's absolutely nothing else that has to be done. But I don't believe what FMEP says and I believe he still has to go to Supreme Court to get the uh, child support order released. Okay, can can you just, just Stuart, before you respond specifically, can you tell all of us what FMEP sure. means? Yes, FMEP is a uh, an organization, a governmental organization called the Family Maintenance Enforcement Program. Oh, okay. It exists in each province and it exists in most of the states, uh, although it has different names uh, in the United States. And FMEP in, in the U.S., Canada, Europe, they cooperate with each other to enforce child support orders okay, and right. spousal support orders. So they have the authority to uh, take away a driver's license, take away a passport, um, they of the authority to garnish wages. They basically are there to assist uh, the recipients in getting their spousal and child support. Now, you know, if the children aged out six and eight years ago and the FMAP is no longer enforcing, I personally, if somebody came to me in those circumstances, I would not do anything um, because of the cost of going to court to get a court order to say the old order is no longer valid. Um, it just isn't necessary in that case if nobody's enforcing the order. Uh, you can get a written agreement with the the, the mother of the children uh, saying she agrees that child support's no longer 
longer payable and the children are all adults. Uh, that would be sufficient um, if there was ever a future claim in that regard. And you can, if you wanted to, go to Supreme Court and vary the order to say, I want a, a judicial declaration that the children are no longer children of the marriage. The problem is the costs of doing that with a lawyer um, would be you know, a bit excessive for the value that you're getting. Because right. if nobody's enforcing the order, then you don't have to worry about anything. So, caller, is, is, is that a... It would be a it would be a consent order, but the the, the problem I, I had I had an incident where everything was settled fifteen years prior, and then uh, you know as as life goes on, I happened to be making a fair amount of money, and and my even though FMEP was gone and and uh, and a bunch of other things happened, my ex took a run at me for a hundred thousand dollars, and and uh, you know if I hadn't had that. Uh, old Supreme Court order vacated. I and welcome back to the program. I'm Sterling Fox, joined in studio by Stuart Zuckerman, the founder and senior partner of the Zuckerman Law Group with offices in Surrey and in downtown Vancouver uh, on Mainland Street in Yaletown. The offices in Surrey, that's the main office that's too, correct. Stuart. That's at uh, 152nd Street and roughly 54th Avenue, right? Uh, uh, yeah, Highway 10, just off Highway 10 and, and 152nd, yeah. Uh, okay, so you're, and uh, lawyers, uh, a staff of lawyers in both offices. Uh, a total of 15 lawyers and right. staff with over 80 years of combined courtroom You've experience. just expanded your staff recently, we too, have, haven't yep. you? That's correct. Okay, well, there's nothing like good uh, good busy now, is there? Yes. A lot busy on our phone board this afternoon, so let's get right back, and we'll start this round in West Vancouver. Good afternoon. Summits that can't... Oh, okay. That was uh, not, not the right one, so okay. We'll go to Maple Ridge and see what's happening out there. Hello. Okay, uh, let's go to Surrey and try this one. Hello. Nope, having a little trouble with the telephone this afternoon. And uh, so this is all, uh, we're just going to step aside, Stuart, let uh, Ben and Andrew uh, pull out the screwdrivers and work on the gear. And you and I can talk. Sure. Uh, and and uh, one of the things that you specialize in, and if you go to the website, friends, it's zuckermanlaw.ca, and you'll see all the areas of practice. Family law, of course, is what we talk about the most. But when you break that down, you're talking about support and custody, spousal supports, uh, and uh, property division, uh, restraining orders. Also, the, the, the area, it's sort of an umbrella, family law. That's right. Under yep. which there are so many subcategories. Yep. Mediation, collaborative law, divorce, uh, adoption, um, same-sex separation or same-sex uh, cohabitation agreements, uh, um, and, and of course marriage agreements, prenuptial agreements, separation agreements, all those things are uh, part of the uh, – Part of the umbrella of family law. Okay, now let's talk a little bit about uh, property division because we started to talk about it in the context of the change in family law, yes. which now sees common law couples in British Columbia treated by the law the same way as formerly married people are Correct. treated. And so that means, uh, and what, I'm, what, I'm, what a lot of people get, get curious about, I, I think, Stuart, is if you bring, for example, an inheritance left to you by your grandparents yes. into a relationship uh is that money divisible at the end of the relationship so so generally inheritances are excluded property so they're separate property it is possible though in a situation where you know a long-term marriage somebody receives an, an inheritance um and then they use they they invest the inheritance and then they use from time to time funds from that inheritance certainly the growth in value from the date of receipt of, if the if the inheritance was received during the cohabitation it's possible uh, that you could successfully argue for the non-owning spouse that the growth in equity, if somebody receives a million dollars, 
dollars and invests it, and it grows and it's worth two million by the time they separate, the the court would exclude the million dollar the original million, right? But the growth could be divided fifty fifty between the parties. That would be the the presumpt the presumptive approach of the of the law. The other thing I wanted to ask you about, and you just mentioned them ever so briefly, is the non court approach to family law because the changes in the act in twenty thirteen, as I understand it, at least Stuart provided more opportunities, more avenues for people to pursue short of going to the very expensive solution of court. Yes, so there is something under the Family Law Act where you can file what's called a notice to mediate and it forces the other side to enter into mediation. Of course, there's no guarantee once you're in mediation that the other side will cooperate or listen to your offers or or respond, but most uh, mediators are skilled family lawyers who are trained at eliciting um, the, the positions of each of the parties and then helping the parties hear each other and understand each other's position and move towards settlement. So I've had many cases that with a notice to mediate, even where one party didn't want to mediate, where we ended up settling the entire case. Because in mediation, sometimes if your own lawyer isn't honest and upfront with you about what it's going to cost to go to litigation, to go to trial, the mediator certainly, who's an experienced family lawyer, will make it clear in you know separate courtrooms, look, you're talking about spending $100,000 or $50,000 on a trial, right. and you're only $20,000 apart. It doesn't make any sense to spend that money on a trial, you guys should compromise and come to a middle ground um, rather than paying your lawyers fifty to 100000 each to end up with a very similar outcome to what's being proposed here. So mediators are good at predicting what the outcome will be at trial and helping uh, difficult parties understand their rights and obligations um, and the likelihood of the outcome of trial in order to help settlement take place. Okay. I'm told by the fellas that it's okay to try the phones again. Okay. So let's go back to West Vancouver and take two. Hello? Yeah, that's Sterling? Yes, sir, it is. Thank oh, God hi, you're there. <laughs> yep, thank you. Um, pleasure. I was very interested in the opening comments about a couple that uh, separated, and there was a significant growth in real estate value of a home. Yes, yes. And my question is, what would happen in a situation where, say, a couple got together three years ago, one of the partners bought an expensive condominium about a year and a half ago, and all of a sudden, this real estate bubble bursts, and they find themselves underwater on their mortgage. How would the courts handle that? Good well, question. Well, the the, the law uh, under the Family Law Act is that both the 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 increase in equity during cohabitation is subject to a fifty fifty split, and the increase in debt of either of the parties are subject to the fifty fifty split. So, um, you know, the 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 argument would be that if there's a loss or a debt that is incurred as a result of a real estate investment, that that's to be shared. 50-50 by the parties. Now, the, you know, the issues here is if it's a three-year, the shorter the relationship, the more sympathetic the courts are to each party keeping their own um, assets, and and then and they would look at you know if it was a three year relationship where the parties' finances were entirely separate, they didn't share bank accounts, they made they made their own decisions. For for example, if the non owning spouse on that property said, "Look, I I never wanted." the purchase of that condo. I opposed uh-huh. it um, and he proceeded to do it in any event despite my telling him it was a bad investment um, and now he's looking to me for 50% of the loss and I'm opposed to that. The court would would consider that under the substantial unfairness argument um, based on the short relationship of the parties and based on whether the parties were sharing their finances or not. Interesting stuff. Thanks for the call and a good question too. Uh, to Maple Ridge next. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Yes, sir. My question is, my son's just gone through a split about six months ago, and they bought a dog a year ago. 
and now she's stopping from seeing the dog. What grounds does he have on there? Any? Uh, it's an interesting question. Stuart's uh, I, smiling because uh, it, this comes up a lot. I've had that case. Uh, I went to court early, early in my career um, on a case where uh, the man had bought two dogs, one for his mother, one for his wife, and they lived in a townhome with the, or a home with the mother in her own in-law suite downstairs okay. with her own dog, mm-hmm. and the husband and wife upstairs with their dog. Husband and wife had a fight. Husband hit wife. Wife called the police. Husband is removed from the home and not allowed back in. Right. And the next day after, the day after the separation, the wife, who doesn't like the mother-in-law and wants her to move out, uh, opens the laundry room, which is shared between the parties, calls the dog that, uh, the twin dog that lives with the mother-in-law into the laundry room and takes that dog into her side of the house and then refuses to return that dog to the mother-in-law or to the husband so she has both dogs. Oh my. And the, the husband was very upset because his mother who was about 83 really relied on that dog for her companionship. So we went to court and sought an order for the return of the dog to the mother-in-law and the court admonished me for taking up the court's time on, on a dog issue um, and the, the the judge decided it on the basis of the registered uh, papers which unfortunately when they bought the dog the wife put her name down as the registered owner even though the husband paid for the two dogs right. so because the dogs were registered in her name the court said that's how you deal with dogs are not children dogs are property and so uh, a custody so to speak of dogs uh, would be determined by the registered owner um, uh, whoever paid for or who has the receipt in their name saying the dog belongs to them. Does this uh, help at all, our, our caller in Maple Ridge? Does this, uh, who was the no, owner in this no. case? They both were there. They uh, both there you go. The dog. So it doesn't really help. She's rested in Vancouver, and he hasn't rested in Pimata. So, I mean, well, you know, I suppose if, 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 the, did, if, if yeah. the purchase papers of the dog had both of their names on it, then there would be an argument to share the dog as you would share an asset. So it could be that the court would order um, possibly a week-on-week-off sharing of the dog if both parties are, are jointly on the receipt for the dog. But if one party is on the receipt or the registered owner, then they would award the custody of the dog to that owner. And you know, Stuart, for some people listening to this, my God, all that over a blinking dog for yes, crying out yeah. But this is such an emotional moment in people's lives. Absolutely. The script has just been ripped up into a million little pieces. This is not the way things were supposed to turn yes. out. And people get pretty cranked up and pretty emotional about things like dogs. Yeah, well, that's one of the reasons I tell people in a relationship to have a cohabitation agreement or uh, so that you have you can have an agreement and in the agreement you can say, if we ever split up, this is what we're going to do with our dog, this yeah. is what we're going to do with our cat. And you can have a term that says you're going to share them 50-50 or, or whatever one person is going to take one or you'll see them on certain weeks of the year or whatever. That can all be put into a cohabitation agreement to avoid one of these disputes when you separate. You can certainly understand, though, the courts not really wanting to spend a lot of time on stuff like this. All right. To Surrey next. Good afternoon. Well, hi. Hi. Uh, I have a question. Sure. Um, My spouse and I are currently separated. Uh, His lawyer is preparing a separation agreement. Okay. And my spouse insists that I don't need a lawyer, uh, that his lawyer can arrange everything. I'm just not sure would this uh, separation agreement uh, be fair or if it's even legal to have just one lawyer dealing with everything. That's an excellent question, yeah. too. So the, the answer is that, that, that in order for the agreement to be upheld and valid, each of the parties has to have independent legal advice. So it is possible for 
two parties to, for example, retain a collaborative lawyer or a uh, mediator to help them mediate their uh, dispute, and the mediator may draft up a separation agreement for the parties to sign. But even that mediator will say to each of the parties at the end of the day, Have this Here, here's the agreement. Each of you goes to your own independent legal advice. Yeah. That lawyer will sign off on the agreement that he has given you independent legal advice, and that way the agreement is binding on both parties. It's very dangerous to enter into an agreement where only one party or neither party have independent legal advice. Those agreements are much easier to challenge in the future because if there was no independent legal advice, each party can argue their own interpretation of what they thought the certain terms of the agreement meant. And then that, there's an argument that there was no meeting of the minds, which is an essential aspect of contract law. There must be a meeting of the minds when you're uh, – it's called consensus ad idem is a necessary um, element of forming a contract. And if one party says, I thought term three meant this, and the other party says, I thought term three meant that, then they had they never had a meeting of the minds right. and the whole agreement can be tossed aside. Whereas with independent legal advice, the court will say, look, each lawyer in BC has a certain presumed knowledge and it's 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 presumed that the lawyer explained the agreement to each of the parties in accordance with the law at the time of that agreement. So both parties would have the same understanding of the terms. Now, in a prenup, because uh, you were talking about dogs in that sense, yeah. you know, have a, before things get really up and running, sit down and, and uh, try and map out uh, what what could happen, what might happen should this thing go south on yes. us. Uh, but that would have been done by a couple of people sitting at the kitchen table making some kind of agreement. Would that be, uh, therefore, less, have fewer legal legs to stand on uh, in, well, in a court scenario? As long as both parties got independent legal advice when they sign that prenup, it's, it'll be upheld in, in all likelihood. It's only where... Uh, where the parties don't get legal advice, that it's easier to challenge an agreement. Okay. So, again, if you are entering into a family law situation and and the other party says, oh, you don't need a lawyer. My guy will take care of everything. Yeah. Uh, you do. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Bottom line, you do. Uh, to um, Where are we going? Richard's on the line next, I believe, from Abbotsford. Good afternoon. <clears throat> yes, good afternoon. Yes, sir. Uh, hi, Stuart. Hi. Um, I have a question for you. I've been paying um, child support for two to three years now for two children. Um, my oldest turns 19 very soon. And sadly, um, our relationship has become next to nothing. I've certainly tried everything I can to try and restore the relationship. I believe there's some parental alienation going on. How much clout or how much would the court consider if I um, basically went saying that you know my son has unilaterally terminated the relationship? How much bearing does that have for continued child support beyond the age of 19 for the oldest? Well, it, it does have a bearing, and the case I'd refer you to to look at is Farden, F-A-R-D-E-N versus Farden. So F-A-R-D-E-N versus F-A-R-D-E-N from the BC Supreme Court. Um, that's a leading decision. I was the lawyer for Mr. Farden. His son had unilaterally terminated the relationship with the father, and that was one of the factors, even though the son was going to Langara at the time of the application, the court refused the um, mother's application for child support on behalf of the child on the basis of the child's unilateral termination of the relationship with the father, which had been propagated by the parental alienation of the mother. So that's the case you want to look at. There's another case called Darlington and Darlington from our Court of Appeal, which says that Farden and Farden continues to apply even after the child support guidelines come into effect. So there is an argument to be made. Uh, on the other hand, you know, courts are 
um, realistic and reasonable if the husband's income, if the payor's income is significantly high and the mother's income is significantly low and the kid is going to school um, and it depends on the evidence, you're going to say that the child unilaterally terminated the relationship and that you've tried to contact and he won't give information. He, the, the, the son may say, uh, my father was verbally abusive to Emotion, me or right. emotionally abusive and I don't want to talk to him and so it, you know, it, the court's not going to blindly cut off child support for somebody going to school full time unless there's some significant evidence. In the Farden case, the son had actually on his 19th birthday when the father sent him one of the annual, the father had annually sent Christmas and, and birthday cards and he would always get them back for night for almost 15 years since the, they separated when the kid was five. The, the child would rip the card in half and send it back to the father but would keep the cash that the father would send. <laughs> of course. And in this case, when he turned 19, the son sent back a, a note saying, don't send me birthday cards or, or Christmas cards anymore. I'm 19. Um, I'm an adult. I don't want to have anything to do with you. I'm changing my name and I never want to speak to you again. And that letter was put into exhibit in court to establish, to help the court establish that the child had unilaterally terminated his relationship with the father and it was one of the factors that was used by the court to actually cut off child support. So Richard, there you go. There's a good solid answer to at least get you started and uh, Mr. Zuckerman has personal hands-on experience with this very specific type of situation so I highly recommend a follow-up. ZuckermanLaw.ca online is where you'll find uh, all the information about the firm, uh, the contact numbers, the addresses, email, uh, arrange an appointment, all of that stuff at Zuckerman Law. Zuckerman, by the way, friends, is Z-U-K-E-R-M-A-N. ZuckermanLaw.ca. One more. Richard in Vancouver, if you can be quick, sir, we'll include you too. Yes, I was just wondering about in terms of um, 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 pre- um, premarital agreements or um, what did he call them again? Um, prenup? Yeah. Um, say if, um, if um, does that, uh, can you, in terms of the split of assets, and I get the thing that the acquired increase in value of assets okay. and all that, can you deal with things like that within a prenuptial uh, absolutely. agreement? Absolutely. Absolutely. The whole point of either cohabitation agreements for common law people or prenuptial agreements for people getting married or marriage agreements for people who are already married, all three of those things uh, can deal those agreements deal with property and debts, and you can in those agreements say I own these three properties or these two properties, and and the the wife is never going to have an interest in them. They were never going to have an interest in the growth, and the husband is solely responsible for right. for paying for those properties. That can be the term of the agreement that that they're not going to divide the equity in the future because the husband's going to pay all the bills. If you set that out in the beginning, then that agreement is likely to be upheld as long as each party had independent legal advice, and as long as the agreement, as you said earlier, represents a meeting of the minds. Yes. Both parties completely understood what they were yep. signing on to, had independent legal advice, and, the only other and it becomes a binding document. As long as there's been full and frank financial disclosure as well. If, if it turns out later that somebody misled or didn't disclose some of their assets, that's a basis for challenging the agreement as well. Interesting stuff. We appreciate the calls very much this afternoon. And had every and, and we're so glad that we got the phone. We just moved into this new room yesterday. To say that there are a few bugs is the understatement of the day. Thank you very much for your calls this afternoon. Stuart, it, it's it's always so much fun when you come by, but it always never lasts long enough. We just so kind of get warmed up, and then yeah. it's time to say goodbye. But Too fast. Thank you so much for this, and we do appreciate your coming in. The legal advice that you dispense on our program is invaluable, and uh, it's our pleasure to refer our listeners to Zuckerman Law and you and your associates in Surrey and in downtown Vancouver. And, and we're happy to provide free initial consultations, no obligation. Just come, call us, book an appointment, and get a free half hour with a lawyer who can explain your rights and obligations and what it would cost if you want to hire us to 
do anything. Great stuff. That's also an enticing offer. Zuckermanlaw.ca. Stuart, thanks for this. We'll see you hopefully again in a few weeks. Thank you very much. We're back after this break. And once again, our thanks. Oops. Okay, is it my turn now? <laughs> ah, the new studios. They're so much fun. Once again, our thanks to Stuart Zuckerman, senior partner and founder of the Zuckerman Law Group, for another very informative visit. And again, thanks for your many calls, too. Coming up in our next hour, John Carlson with a Vancouver Market Real Estate Update and lots more on the 1% Realty Story. Time now for Duly Noted. And this time around, our producer, Ben Dooley, talks about the frustration of a Vancouver woman who paid the same bill twice. Thanks, Sterling. A Vancouver woman's simple mistake of accidentally paying her plumber twice has led to months of frustration. Melissa Hope was recently diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and she said the the disease affects her short-term memory. She said it's likely the reason why she wrote two checks. Back in 2017, Melissa needed plumbing work done on a tenant's suite. Her contractor recommended the company Vancouver's Plumbing Connection. In March 2017, Melissa paid for the work, writing a check for $1,250. Months later, Melissa said her contractor asked her if she ever received an invoice for the plumbing work. Oh, I don't think I did. So my contractor resent his copy of the same invoice. I printed it, paid it again. At tax time this year, Hope found that she had accidentally paid her plumber twice. She said she notified Vancouver's Plumbing Connection of the double payment and provided them with proof, but was ignored. Hope says if there's a lesson to be learned here, it's to keep a record of every transaction and keep track of where your money is going. I'm Ben Dooley, and that's Dooley Noted. Thank you, Ben. Time for a couple more consumer quickies before the news. It's not the first time, and it won't be the last. The Asian food in Metro Vancouver has been named by a major publication as being the best in North America. The honors this time belong to Richmond, and the source is the New York Times, which has published uh, previously good reviews about Vancouver as well. In an article this week, Vancouver-born New York Times writer Taris Gresco says, quote, Richmond has the best Chinese food outside of greater China, full stop. What it comes down to are the quality of ingredients here in Metro Vancouver, from the fresh local produce to the abundance of seafood and the ways in which those foods are used to create incredible dishes that the well-trained local palate can enjoy. That, and of course, the fact that so many chefs are here from Asia and bring skills that truly dazzle us all. Lucky us! Another new idea for those summer visitors heading our way over the next few months. And finally, it's Kraft Heinz to the rescue. Of all little kids and their summertime lemonade stands, the Country Time Lemonade brand has created a legal aid fund to pay the fine slapped on little kids trying to make a few bucks, usually for charity, who are being hassled by bylaw officers and other local officials who seem to have nothing better to do. Here's how the legal aid thing works. 
any child fined for running a lemonade stand without a permit can have his or her parent supply, apply for reimbursement. Just upload the image of your kid's permit or fine, along with a description of why they were in the lemonade business in the first place, and the company is equipped to handle your case to the tune of up to $300. They say, uh, go ahead, kids, run your lemonade stands. Country time legal aid is on your side and will protect you. When life hands you outdated laws, make lemonade, make lemonade rather, and we'll give you legal aid. Well, you know, the marketeers at Kraft Heinz, definitely wide awake on that one. And what an excellent summer promotion, hassling little kids for selling lemonade. Come on. That is uh, our program for this hour, produced by Ben Dooley with Andrew Ferreira at the controls. We're back after the top of the hour news with John Carlson and more on the 1% Realty Story. Stay with us here on Vancouver Consumer. You're with 980 CKNW. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.